My name is Joshua, and I'll be bringing you the word. Am I too close to the screen here, Cindy? Okay. Uh, so today we're finishing up our series in the book of Esther. And if you remember, the theme of this series has been to ask the question, what does it mean to be faithful in hard times through meekness and wisdom? And we've seen Esther and Mordecai in different ways demonstrate that faithfulness throughout the book. Well, where we are in the story right now is that Haman, the ultimate enemy, has been defeated. But the decree that Haman introduced through the king still stands, that the Jews are to be annihilated. And since that decree cannot be revoked, the king allows Esther and Mordecai to write up another decree in his name. And that decree gives all the Jews the right to defend against and destroy anyone who tries to attack them. That's where we left off. Now let me read some portions of Esther 9 and 10, and then we'll look into it. Hear the word of God. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in, that king, in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa but they laid no hands on the plunder. 
Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. Verse 29 then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. And then chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, you are sovereign even over the enemy. Help us to see this passage from an eternal perspective and give us the food we need today to move forward in your name. Amen. Amen. These days, uh, when I want to unwind, uh, I put on a Korean drama called King the Land. It's a story about a wealthy hotel owner's son. He's cool, handsome, and smart, perfect Korean dude. The other main character is a regular working woman uh, living in a small apartment with her friends. And she gets hired as an employee of the hotel, welcoming guests and things like that. Eventually, these two characters cross paths and start off on the wrong foot. Uh, she thinks he sent her something inappropriate, even though it was from somebody else and they hate each other for a while. Uh, well, I'm at the part now where the guy sees her dressed up outside her hotel uniform for the first time, and you see a twinkle in his eye. Uh, whenever I tell people I'm watching this drama, the reaction is always the same. Why? People say it's so predictable. She's probably going to trip on something and land on his chest, and he's going to hug her in slow motion, and she's going to be like, oh, and start thinking about him. And then at night, she's going to be like, oh, what's wrong with me? But what people don't understand is 
that it's the predictability of the show that makes me feel at ease. Uh, somebody said, cliches are attractive because we know exactly where the story, the melody, and the punchline is going to land. And we don't have to be anxious when enjoying something like that. At the end of the book of Esther, we see God's people finally arriving at a place of celebration. After overpowering all their enemies, they're able to feast together with joy. And what I hope we can take home from this is that we also, as a church, have a story, and it's predictable. Um, we know exactly how it's going to pan out because Jesus Christ rose again and guaranteed us a future with him. That's our destiny. But what does it mean to live right now as Christians in light of that future? Uh, here's the main idea for today's sermon. The more regularly we feast on our gospel hope, the more clarity we will have in our gospel work. The more regularly we feast on our gospel hope, the more clarity we will have in our gospel work. Three points to flesh that out. Um, number one, a feast of justice. Number two, a feast of relief. And number three, a feast of peace. First, a feast of justice. So what do we see? On the, days that, on the day that the Jews are supposed to be annihilated by all their enemies, they're able to gather together and legally fight back against those who hate them. And the text says the enemies had no chance. The Jews gained mastery over them and no one could stand against them. Even the officials in the provinces helped them because they were afraid of the Jews and Mordecai and they were able to kill thousands of men, including the ten sons of Haman. Now, there's something we have to address here. Uh, a lot of people are uncomfortable with the fact that the Jews here are causing so much violence and death on other people, uh, even if it's justified, uh, right? It seems wrong that God would allow his followers to commit something that looks like genocide. How do we read a passage like this? Uh, I'm not going to be able to solve all the questions you might have on God's violence in this sermon. But what I can offer is a clue in verses 10 and 16 to help us. In these verses it says, they laid no hands on the plunder. Now why is that significant? It's because the author is alluding to a previous time in Israel's history when God's people under Saul were faced with another enemy, the Amalekites. And at that time, God told Saul to destroy the enemies of God because of their sin and idolatry. But he told Saul not to spare anything they have. He commands him not to take any plunder. But Saul disobeyed God, and after defeating the Amalekites, he spares their king, Agag, and takes their goods. Um, and years later, somebody from the line of the Amalekites appears in the book of Esther. He's called the Agagite. Who's that? It's Haman. And so because the king and his progeny were not killed a long time ago by Saul, his descendant reappears to antagonize God's people. But in today's passage, unlike Saul, the Jews don't lay hands on the plunder. It shows that this time they were fully in line with God's command from the past. Here's why this connection matters. In the Old Testament... God made a distinction between his people and his enemies. He was separating what is holy 
and unholy. That's all throughout scripture. There are clean and unclean things in the presence of God. And the Old Testament was a particular time when God was showing the world who he is as a God, what his character is. And he did that through a nation. See, he's perfectly just, righteous, holy, and pure, even beyond human categories. But for some reason, he decided to choose one people to be his own. He covered their uncleanness with sacrifices and priests. And anything outside this people was still under his holy and fair judgment. That's why when we see Saul fighting the Amalekites and now Esther fighting, uh, as people fighting Haman from a human level, it looks like brutality. But in the Old Testament context, on a cosmic level, it was God showing the world that there's such a thing as holiness and such a thing as unholiness in his sight. Um, if you look in verse 1, it says that the Jews gained mastery over their enemies. See, the focus is not first on the Jews killing their enemies. The focus is on the fact that God's holiness prevailed over unholiness. Let me pause there. Family of God, in our time, it's not as black and white as it was in Esther's day. We don't live in a theocracy where one nation is set apart for God and everyone else is evil. That's how it looked in the past, but now in Christ, the kingdom is more invisible. Right? It happens in people's stories and faith rather than one ethnicity. But just because it's more invisible and not national, it doesn't mean that the battle against evil is less real. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 6, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, God is just as serious about evil now as he was in the past, but these days he calls his followers to destroy sin, broken systems, unjust laws, and idols. That's how we proclaim his holiness as a church. King's Cross, I know a lot of us come from difficult backgrounds. Toxic church environment, hurtful upbringings, corrupt politics, societal failures, these are things that still wound us today. That's why so many of us are deconstructing and our friends are leaving the church. Evangelical culture can be oppressive. Sometimes our parents' generation was not great at listening to our emotional needs. People on the margins are not hurt by the systems we've been part of. But if you're in here and you're wrestling with the faith because of these things, I want to encourage you from our passage. God is furious when you're treated unfairly. God is angry for you when you're unheard. God is filled with wrath when somebody hurts you. And so as much as you've been wrestling, I pray that if you're willing, the Holy Spirit will move you to give the gospel one more look. Because in the gospel of God, there's such a thing as evil. There's such a thing that's clearly wrong against God's character, and it will not go unchecked. Uh, the gospel doesn't take justice lightly because it's from a God of justice. In him, we have a basis to say, what you did to me is wrong. And we also have a basis to say, what I did to you is wrong before God and humility. When you feel yourself doubting, or deconstructing, would you consider 
that the gospel might actually help you doubt and deconstruct wisely to get closer to Christ, not farther. The gospel might actually uplift you in your efforts to fight sin and systems and evil in yourself and those around you. Now again, this passage, uh, it shows us the clear holy and unholy, but it also shows us a picture of what will be in our future. One day, all tears will be wiped away, whatever you're dealing with right now. All wrongs will be made right, and there will be complete healing and vindication in Jesus. That's our future with him as followers. So remember that. See, as we see in the next verses, the Jews established a feast to remember their victory. Remember that God will prevail over injustice and hurt, and we will be with him in glory. Remember that because that will both comfort you to let you know that this world is not the end, but also strengthen you and affirm you that your efforts of justice and fighting against sin uh, is supported by God. A man named James Russell Lowell wrote a poem called This Present Crisis. And in one famous verse, he imagines a scaffold and a throne on top of the scaffold. This is what he says. Truth is forever on the scaffold, but wrong is forever on the throne. Yet the scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Uh, he's saying, man, sometimes it feels like everything's messed up in and around me. Wrong is on the throne, but what determines the future is God's truth. He is sovereign, watching over his own, and he will prevail. That's what we hold on to uh, as followers of Jesus. That's the feast of justice. Second point is the feast of relief. So the Jews overcome their enemies and Mordecai sends a letter to his people to establish a regular annual feast to commemorate the day they received relief. And every year to this day, Jewish people would celebrate that deliverance from under Haman with joy and feasting. Now, what's interesting here is what they named this feast, uh, Purim, based on the word pur, lots, that you cast in ancient Persia. Uh, remember when Haman was trying to determine what day he would kill the Jews? He cast lots, pur, to the Persian gods. But what Haman meant for evil was reversed and worked in the Jews' favor. So even though God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, the fact that the Jews named this feast Purim, Feast of Lots, means that they acknowledged something was happening in the background. Even behind the enemy's lots was their sovereign God. Because the month that Haman landed on, Adar, was the month of Passover, one of the most significant months of rescue for God's people. Another interesting note here is that when Mordecai recounts the story of Esther in this letter, verse 25, he changes the story a little bit. Uh, he, he says, the king Ahasuerus gave a written decree to bring Haman's evil on his own head. But that, that never happened. Uh, the king never wrote a decree to execute Haman or to rescue the Jews. Even the decree to allow the Jews to defend themselves, Mordecai wrote that with the king's permission. So why did Mordecai say that the king wrote a decree? 
on one hand, he might be trying to uh, make the king look better and more authoritative because he's still living under his empire. But on the other hand, it could be that Mordecai is talking about a different king, uh, a greater king. The, the king that reversed Haman's evil with his sovereign decree and delivered the Jews was not an earthly king. So all that to say that in this establishment of, uh, establishment of Purim, a feast to remember the Jews' salvation, even though God's not mentioned, there are hints that he was there behind the scenes securing relief for his people. Uh, there's a story in 2 Kings when the king of Syria was about to attack and seize Elisha, uh, God's prophet. And this king sent a huge army with horses and, horses and chariots to surround the city where Elisha was staying. And in the morning, Elisha's servant got up and saw the enemy uh, army surrounding them, about to capture his master. And he got extremely scared. And he said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha calmly answered his servant, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant was like, What's he talking about? It's just us two against the whole army. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young servant, and he saw the mountain was full of God's horses and chariots of fire surrounding them with protection. We live in a culture where it doesn't always seem like God is involved. Uh, it's fast-paced and secular. We have to plan, organize, and be capable, especially in New York City. When I moved here, somebody said, Josh, nobody's going to take care of you. You have to take care of you. Uh, and to an extent, that's correct. In some ways, that's what it means to be a responsible adult. But why did Mordecai and Esther establish this regular feast to remember their moment of freedom? Why did they stop what they were doing once a year to celebrate? And why did they write it down? Um, it's because it was feeding their souls, see, which was so necessary for them. What does it do to somebody when they're constantly reminding themselves of who God is and what he's done? Yesterday, I was using a notepad and pen for a meeting. And at one point, for some reason, I started swiping up on the paper with my finger. Uh, a baby did that to me once. He started swiping up on my face. Maybe he didn't want to see me anymore. Some habits and rituals get ingrained in our body. What does it do to somebody when they're in a rhythm of reminding themselves, God is sovereign. God will give me relief in word, prayer, and community. And what it does is, over time, it's like the Grand Canyon was formed over time. It lifts the weight off of us because we realize this life is not all on us. Whether it's our personal darkness or the darkness around us, we wrestle with these realities. But when we take a step back and pause, meditating on him as our king, there's freedom because we know he's working in the background in and around us in his timing and his wisdom, leading us to exactly where we're supposed to be. He will provide relief and growth in your life. He will change you. He will change the world. And he will bring fruit even when you're burned out. Oh. Even when you mess up the worst you've ever messed up and you don't even want to come to church anymore, he will keep his promises in you and the people around you. We're not always going to see it, 
But God is more serious about your healing and the healing of his creation than we will ever be. And that should be a comfort to us. So family of God, our feast of relief in some ways is what we're doing here every Sunday, surrendering, uh, surrendering our time to him and what we do in our private devotions, shaping ourselves, not just with information. One of my youth students once said to me, Josh, no offense, but why do you say the same thing every week? It's because we're not primarily here for information. We're here for formation. And formation comes from a regular feeding of the same truth. He has and will bring relief for his people, for his glory. Can you trust that? That was the Feast of Relief. And lastly, uh, the Feast of Peace. Uh, there's a problem in this passage. And that is that even though the Jews have relief from their enemies, they're still under a toxic king in the end. Uh, king Ahasuerus is still around and still messed up. Uh, he, he's nice to the Jews now, but he's not a moral leader. Think about it. Uh, his own people are dying. And he doesn't care. Uh, he's callous, insecure, and selfish. But as Mordecai and the Jews become more empowered and enjoy more privileges in the empire, something starts to emerge in their culture. Look what it says in verse 22. They established Purim for feasting and gladness, but also to give food to one another and gifts to the poor. And chapter 10, verse 3, it says, Mordecai sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The way I look at this text, right, is to ask the question, what is the ultimate win under God in the book of Esther? Is it that Esther and Mordecai were brave? Is it that Haman died? Is it that the Jews conquered the enemy? No, I think the most powerful gospel win in this book is that after the Jews receive relief from their enemies, God's presence starts to shine through them in a broken empire. Uh, after they've been rescued, God's glory appears in their mercy and peace toward each other and toward the poor. See, King Ahasuerus imposed taxes and increased his might, but Mordecai, Esther, and the people of God sought the welfare of the people. If you notice, the book of Esther doesn't start with Esther or Mordecai. It starts with King Ahasuerus. And it's because this book is not about human heroes, as, fa as faithful as they were. It's about how there's a situation of evil in the world, this King Ahasuerus-like world. That's our setting. But God desires to bring grace, per uh, mercy, and peace through his people living in that world. That's the whole point of what he's doing. When my sister uh, was studying for her doctor of nursing, uh, she would read some papers on child development. I don't know why. She would call me up and tell me what she's reading. And I said, oh, that's pretty boring, but uh, yeah. Well, one time she told me about this data that there are two kinds of upbringings that tend to produce self-doubt uh, in children. Okay? One is emotionally affirming, but overprotecting the child. And the other is the opposite, giving a lot of independence, but not emotionally affirming the child. Uh, the first one tries to build confidence with words, but it never allows the kid to practice their abilities so they could never know their potential for themselves. Uh, 
The second one allows them to go out and test their abilities in real life so they become competent, but they never hear their parents' affirmation so they can never know if they've done a good job. Both of these produce self-doubt. Um, in order for a child to move toward a healthier development, experts say that there needs to be a balance of independent failure and practice out in the real world combined with emotional affirmation and encouragement. They call this developing a secure attachment. Um, see, it, it's such a beautiful thing when a child is able to feel that early on because then there's a possibility of that child expanding their bandwidth to love somebody else. The main idea of today's sermon was the more regularly we feast on our gospel hope, the more clarity we will have in our gospel work. So far we looked at how justice is meaningful because of a holy God. We practice our justice in the real world based in the gospel that he gives to us. But at the same time, he affirms that he's with us. He's the one who forgives our sins. He's the one who creates change and the one who transforms. He brings relief now and in the future. And as we regularly feast on that, practicing God's righteousness, but being reminded of his promises, pursuing God's holiness and being reminded of God's goodness, it feeds us and shapes us to expand our bandwidth to be able to see and serve each other more clearly outside of ourselves. See, look what Esther and Mordecai did. Why were they giving to the poor? Why were they giving food to each other? Because their bandwidth is expanded, because they received so much grace in this rescue that they just experienced. Family of God, you are able... King's Cross Church, our visitors, you are able to bring peace to this messed up world. One person, one workplace, one group at a time. And no matter what elitist, judgmental criteria of success this city throws onto you, you can know in your heart, with Christ, there's nothing more valuable than God bringing peace to the world through you. But first, in order to do that, you have to feast and meditate on your gospel hope. Look at Jesus. His heart was so set on justice against our evil. But at the same time, he was so compassionate for you and me that he decided to go to the cross. And on the cross, he upheld both of those things perfectly in his death and resurrection. And because he did that, because our Jesus did that, we can feast now and for the future. That's our good news. Allow that to work in you.